Well, it's official. We know who the chief Trump sycophant in Ohio is. Trump endorsed Bernie Moreno yesterday because of his fealty to the former president. That means Frank LaRose's career probably is over, but a lot of people will be hoping that Dolan wins that because Bernie Moreno is about as big a cartoon character on the political scene as we've ever had. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin. And, you know, speaking of Trump, I, I think I've mentioned before to you all that there must be some chat room or somewhere where all the Trumpsters go and an idea pops up and they're all like sheep. They all run out and parrot it. The, the new one is Trump derangement syndrome. Anytime we have anything that says anything about Trump, I get dozens of notes saying you have Trump derangement syndrome or Jeff Darcy has Trump derangement syndrome. It's like these people can't think for themselves. The idea pops up. The sheep all run over TDS, TDS. I literally got an email this morning that says TDS about 20 times to attack a Jeff Darcy cartoon that was actually going after Trump because he is now taking pages from the playbook of Adolf Hitler. He literally is talking about pure blood. He's not pretending. I mean, he says, I'll be a dictator. He's taking playbooks from Mein Kampf. I mean, Darcy was right on the money to talk about it. This guy wants to be Hitler. And of course, he's chosen Bernie Moreno to be a lieutenant in Ohio. So anybody else getting the Trump derangement syndrome criticisms? Oh, that's been going on for a year, at least. Yeah, it just it comes in in packets for me. It's like mm-hmm. the idea pops up and everybody does it. And then that goes away and they come up with something else. There's no independent thought. It's just sheepicles. All right, let's go for the first story. Some good news at the top of this question. Cuyahoga County has delayed the deadline for paying property taxes until mid-February to give people plenty of time to pay. Good thing people are relieved because they just spent a lot of money at Christmas. The bad news is, is that the bills are delayed. And the question we have is why there's disagreement on whether it's the county or the state that is to blame for this. Laura, what can we discern here? Well, there's a lot of finger pointing. And you're right. Good news for homeowners. Not so good news if you value efficient government. But on Thursday, Cuyahoga County announced it was permanently extending the deadline to pay property taxes, not just this year, which it's done a lot of times in the past, but February 15th. Last year, the deadline was January 26th, then adjusted to February 9th. State law says you have to give taxpayers at least 20 days between the issuance of the tax bills and the due date, even though you, you know you're going to to have to pay them. And you can check your bill online now. You just won't get it in the mail until January What it really sounds like is that they don't want to rush it. They don't want to make mistakes. And like everyone else, employees of the county are off at the holidays and they want to give them a break. So while you used to get your paper tax bill in the mail sometime in late December, don't expect that to ever happen again. And the state says it's not our fault. We give See, the state has to verify the tax rates because in November we have an election. People pass levies and all the tax rates change for all sorts of bodies that we have to pay property taxes to. So they have to do all of the calculations. They have to figure out how much everybody's got to pay for their piece of the pie, and then they distribute those. So the state has to do it for every county. And so far, it's only done 28 counties of the 88 in Ohio. But Cuyahoga is one that has been done. And they actually got it earlier this year 
than they did last year. So the state's saying, this is not our fault. Don't point to us. But I think the, the county's just saying, we want to give people a break and have some continuity and uniformity going forward. So we're going to set this mid-February date. Here's what strikes me about this is that before we switched to charter government and we had an elected treasurer for a long time, it was Jim Rakakis, who was a very competent treasurer. We never had this problem. He got the bills out. We always got them in the last week or two of December. You had the time to pay and no one ever thought about it. It was only after we converted to charter government that this has become broken and it's been broken year after year after year. Armin Budish did some stupid stuff where he sent these bills out with very little time to pay them. They ultimately started to extend the deadline. But I just don't get how we went from a system that worked for decades and decades to one we just can't get fixed. Was it because Rakakis had a much bigger staff and they were more efficient? Well, I think that's part of it, right? So Lucas Deprile talked to Jim Rakakis, who I covered when I covered county government, and he says that it, he does believe it's a county problem and that it's it boils down to staffing. So when Rakakis took office in 1997, he said he had 119 employees. That decreased to 81 by the time he left in 2011. I think there was a lot of patronage uh, all over the county, jobs that people were given because they knew people, because they were in the Democratic Party or lived in the same town. He got it down to 81. And now Cuyahoga County's budget calls for 44 employees. And so he's saying, I don't know how you even get the work done with that few employees. I don't know that that is a signal of the charter government versus the commissioner form of government. But just what we've tried to do in cut government spending is cut government jobs, basically. Well, why don't they hire Rokakis as a consultant to come in and fix it then? Because it worked. It worked for a long time, and it doesn't work now. Unless their permanent solution is to just have the delay. A lot of counties, I guess, long ago went to February payment deadlines. And maybe that's the answer. Just always have the payment be in February, and that way people will always have time to pay. Well, that's what they just said. They said this is a permanent extension, February 15th. So I agree that it's confusing if you don't know when the bills are coming out and you don't know when they're due. But if you have a set date every year that they know they can make, that's probably going to help. Um, Summit has a tentative due date of February 23rd. They plan to ask for an extension. Lake and Medina are in the same boat. They haven't gotten their, their tax rates yet. So I think a lot of, a lot of counties, whether or not, because remember, Summit's the only other charter government in this entire state, will be doing this. And I know every time we talk about this charter government, you are not a fan. But we're talking about one very small job that the county does. And they were electing all sorts of people that did all sorts of jobs. And there was a lot of corruption. And you can blame the people that you elect. With, I 100% agree. It was corruption yeah. with four of them. We had a corrupt sheriff. We had a corrupt, single corrupt county Yeah, but you had patronage even where you didn't have corruption. Yeah. I mean, you had a bloated staff. It worked way better. We have not had, we didn't have the problems we're having now. We should point out that Ashtabula County also was blaming the state. They're saying that the state has screwed things up as Cuyahoga is. So it's kind of hard to tell exactly where the problem is you have different yeah different governments blaming each other yeah so and you know you said maybe get rakakis as a consultant what if we just outsource the whole thing i bet you the private sector could do it better 
Oh, dear Lord, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, yeah. That, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm with you, Lisa. That would just make it worse. They would just take a bigger cut of the money. Anyway. Well, that's probably true. Lucas has put together a, a story that addresses all the angles. If you're curious about this, he, he's tried to get to the bottom of it, but you still walk away and, going, why can't we get this fixed? And Hannah Drown, too, I should mention, she, she co-bylined the story. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The sum of money we are about to discuss is staggering because it was largely spent on advertising. Lisa, how much did the groups favoring and opposing abortion rights raise for the statewide campaigns in August and November that ultimately enshrined a right to abortion in the Ohio Constitution? The grand total from both sides is $108.7 million, $108.7 million raised. Uh, the four camp outraised the against camp by at least $17 million. The grand total for the proponents of issue one was $62.7 million. Uh, most of that was raised by Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights. They raised $39.5 million. One person, one vote, which is the group that was fighting issue one in August that would have taken our majority away, they raised $19.6 million for that August special election. Others included Ohio Physicians and Ohioans United PAC for Reproductive Freedom. Now against, they only spent $46 million. The lion's share of that was raised by Protect Women Ohio, $30.5 million. That was mostly on the abortion amendment that they also spent money in the August issue one election as well. West Virginia-based Protect Women Action they uh, raised $8.3 million, but they amassed contributions from several different organizations. Um, Democratic resultant Jeff Rusnak says that contributors were very generous to the pro sides this year. He says that bodes well for progressive causes in 2024, including our uh, amendment hopefully in November to change the way we draw districts in Ohio. He says Ohio is a test case for other states, especially regarding abortion. And he said that really spurred unprecedented state and national fundraising. It, it, it's a staggering sum of money, though, to just advertise, really. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, some of it was to, to collect signatures and that kind of thing. But let's face it, most of this was to get messaging out to Ohioans and on issue one in August, that was important because the Republican masterminds here were trying to sneak that through. And we, and along with a lot of others, made sure that didn't happen. But for abortion, most people knew what they were going to do a long time ago. And yet all this money gets spent. You think about the other uses you could have for $108 million. And then the, the, on the other side, Kelsey Pritchard, who is with the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group that was against issue one, both issue ones. Um, they said that Republican leaders must prepare for 2024. They've got to raise a whole bunch of money to what she says, cut through the abortion lobby's deception. <laughs> yeah, they're all hard at work trying to throw out the will of the voters. They're not believers in democracy. They think they should order people what to do. It's been a striking response from people when the voters spoke so clearly. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The Pope says Catholic priests are free to bless gay couples just months after the Cleveland bishop issued draconian rules for churches and schools about LGBTQ issues. The Pope is seen in the Catholic Church as God's representative on earth. So, Courtney, what is the Cleveland bishop saying about this announcement? 
Yeah, so we got this letter from the Catholic Diocese of Cleveland that kind of distills and gives its spin on this big landmark announcement from the Pope. You know, that document that Pope Francis and the Vatican put out, basically it said that, you know, same-sex couples should be have the opportunity to be blessed. And, and, and that letter from Francis said that those seeking God's love and mercy shouldn't be subject to an exhaustive moral analysis before getting that blessing. So back on the Cleveland side, this statement from the Cleveland diocese, you know, kind of doubles down on, on what, what Francis said. He, he said the Pope made it clear that anyone who has the intention of seeking God's help in living holy lives can request a blessing from the church. But this letter from the Cleveland Diocese, you know, specifically calls out what we're talking about here, same-sex couples. And the letter says, quote, such people, including those who are in marriages not recognized by the church and those in same-sex relationships, can be spontaneously blessed by the church's ministers. So, you know, they they draw that line in their letter and they're kind of putting their own spin. But a lot of it's just kind of a reiteration of what the Pope had said. Yeah, but when you go back and read what the bishop put out to all the churches and schools in, what was it, three months ago, it was intolerant. It was like zero tolerance. We're not going to have any discussion. We're not going to have any displays, no rainbows, nothing, nothing, nothing. And now, because the Pope has ordered it, people will be able to go into the church and be blessed. That is not in keeping with the policy. I think it was wise for the bishop not to put out a statement taking issue with it because the Pope has removed a couple of bishops for doing things like that. Just fascinating to me how far apart the Pope and the Cleveland Diocese have become. Yeah, this this it's, difference between American bishops and here in Cleveland and the Pope has has been stark. And, and like you said, the Pope has recently been more welcoming to trans folks. And we saw that pushback from Cleveland. I think this letter from the diocese probably flicks at that diplomatically. Like the, the Cleveland diocese letter says, this in no way changes church teachings, including that <laughs> marriage is reserved to one man and one woman. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's not like in your face, we're so against this. And I think there were so many people grappling with the church's letter in the fall and trying to, yeah, Yeah. sorry, the diocese letter, trying to make it fit in their, their head. You know, they, they've always been Catholic, but they don't, they don't agree with this letter. And we had so many philosophical conversations about like, well, if you don't believe everything the Catholic Church teaches, then are you really Catholic? And my view that most people that go to Catholic churches are cafeteria Catholics, and they have to kind of make sense of it for themselves. And the gospel this past weekend said, test everything. And it just like brought this all back to me. Like this idea is like, test everything, think it through. And I hope that the church is changing. I I really do. I hope it's becoming more tolerant and more accepting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Cliffs tried to buy U.S. steel earlier this year to build an American steel behemoth centered right in Cleveland. It's not happening. Laura, who beat out Cleveland Cliffs for the Pittsburgh-based U.S. steel? And what's the reaction from the senators in Ohio? So this is a Tokyo company called Nippon Steel. And... Senators who don't probably agree on a lot of things, J.D. Vance and 
uh, Senator Sherrod Brown, our agreement on this. They say it's bad. And that's even though I thought it was really funny that Cleveland Cliffs put out a congratulatory letter or, or statement about this deal, but it's for $14.1 billion. And Nippon is going to assume hundreds of millions of dollars in debt from U.S. Steel. So that brings the total sale price to about fourteen point nine billion dollars. Cleveland Cliffs had offered about $7.3 billion in August. So U.S. Steel is going to keep its headquarters in Pittsburgh. They're become a subsidiary of Nippon, and they're going to honor all collective bargaining agreements in place with U.S. Steel workers. But Brown said that if U.S. Steel had to be sold, they wanted a pro-union American company that values its workers like Cleveland Cliffs, and that this is bad news. And J.D. Vance, totally against it as well. Well, steel is a central industry for any country. Steel is what holds up many of the buildings we have and is used in all sorts of things that are vitally important. So having a foreign owner of a significant steel company in America would be scary for a lot of people, but we do live in a free market. We do live in Mm -hmm. a capitalist society and the high bidder is the one that generally gets it. So it's it's a tough one for people like J.D. Vance, who is supposed to be a free market guy to fight against. But didn't the company, doesn't Nippon have like a pretty big footprint in America already? It's not like they're really a newcomer, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I th- yeah, they've been around for decades. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just you're taking one of the major steel companies that has been based and headquartered here and having it answered to somebody in another country. It, you, you could see why that might make some people nervous. Look, we had it happen with an auto one of our traditional auto plants. This happens in industry. Uh, just interesting that that in the end, Cleveland Cliffs lowballed the price. Evidently, they offered half as much. Right, but it wasn't even a an asked for offer. Like they just came and said, "Hey, we'd like to buy you." I, I'm, so it wasn't for sale. Like it wasn't like a public auction. So it is interesting. But yeah. It double what the, so it does, it does make sense that they turned down the Cleveland Cliffs offer. <laughs> it does. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The days might be numbered for one-term Representative Elliot Forehand in the Ohio legislature. Lisa, what's the latest bad news for the embattled Democrat from South Euclid? Yeah, District 21 Representative Elliot Forehand um, did not get the endorsement. The Cuyahoga County Democratic Party in his district, which is South Euclid, Lindhurst, Beechwood, Euclid, and University Heights, and some parts of Cleveland, party leaders in that district voted four to three to endorse his opponent in the March primary. That would be Eric Seinenberg. He's an attorney and he's currently vice chair of the Beechwood City Council. Um, coming in second was small business owner Angel Washington of Cleveland. She's a political newcomer. No votes for Forehand or his 2022 opponent, Jonathan Holliday. This vote is a recommendation only. So the county entire executive committee will consider endorsements on January 6th. And Forehand, is, he says he's not worried. He says this is just a preliminary vote. He said voters will decide who goes in March. And he says he's not surprised at the recommendation, given the false information about me from the caucus leadership. I, I do worry. The Democratic Party in Cuyahoga County, we have single party rule here, and it's way too powerful and their endorsement matters way more than it should because voters don't do their homework to figure things out. So they get the little postcard and they go and vote it. And it's dangerous because you do get some bad candidates as a result. Uh, Forehand, if he doesn't get this endorsement, he's going to have to work three times as hard to try and keep his seat. He's still arguing 
that this is a bit of a witch hunt against him and that it's unfair. Well, but he there are many documented instances of him harassing federal, you know, fellow representatives, Juanita Brent, for one outbursts, you know, violent outbursts against women. He went, uh, you know, against my former hairdresser who was trying to get legislation through, you know, the General Assembly. So he's got a lot of bad check marks on his report card. I, I, I get it. Uh, it. And we've talked about it a lot. I just it, I hate to see the finger on the scale that the Democratic Party of Cuyahoga County uses. It it feels like it almost takes away the vote. It's why having open primaries would be so much better because it would remove the influence of what is basically a special interest group. Um, and I know you've been talking about pushing for open primaries and that might be a priority for next year. Yeah, I'm hearing from a lot of people who want us to do that. There are a whole lot of people that see that as a path forward. You are listening to Today in Ohio. I'm going to admit that we're only talking about this next story because I didn't know what a button buck or a straight walled cartridge rifle is. And both were terms included in a press release. So, Courtney, how many deer did hunters kill in Ohio during the whitetail season? How many of them were button bucks? And you'll have to explain what that is. And how many were taken with straight walled cartridges? And you'll have to explain what those are. I'm so excited to educate you on this. <laughs> I just learned about it too. <laughs> what we're talking about here is this past weekend was considered an extra gun hunting weekend in Ohio outside the usual hunting windows. And we saw 15,500 deer killed over this past weekend. And that's according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. That includes some 300 or so that were killed with bows and arrows. But the vast majority of that 15,000 number was from gun hunters. And and that's a decent chunk um, when you consider that gun hunters have taken down 96,000 deer total this year. And bow hunters have killed nearly 90,000. So a good chunk just over the last couple days. So let's get to button bucks. And those are actually male fawns. So cute little baby deer that are males is what a button buck is. And where this comes into play is we saw kind of the spread of, of what was hunted this weekend. So 59% of the 15 or thousand so deer killed this weekend were, were does. And bucks made up 29%. And 11% of that total were actually the button bucks, the young, the young males. And they're called button because of the little antler that sticks out of their head. Looks like a button. Correct. Yeah. We have one of those that's been in my yard a good bit. I hope, I hope he wasn't taken. We, <laughs> we don't have hunting in Cleveland Heights. And the straight walled cartridge? Yeah, let's talk about that. So what kinds of guns were, were taking down these deer this weekend? Straight-walled cartridge rifles were the most used weapon here, you know, a hunting rifle. And those accounted for 62% of the animals this weekend. Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Where is the village of Hydrogen Heights, and why doesn't anybody live there, Laura? Well, I love the name here because it's such a nod to, to Cleveland suburbs. But... Um, this is where Dominion Energy has been testing a hydrogen and natural gas blend at their training facility in Boston Heights. It's been going on for a year. They have 16 little tiny homes, and they're testing to see if furnaces, stoves, and other natural gas appliances can be fueled by a little bit of hydrogen in their natural gas. They're looking for a 95%, 5% split. 
And this is actually happening already in Delta, Utah, one of their other sites. They also have a site in North Carolina. And I had no idea. This is fascinating. But the idea is this would be cleaner because hydrogen's vapor is just water. Like there's no bad product for the environment. Unless it's running past steel, then you could argue it's pretty seriously bad <laughs> for the environment because it causes rust. Right. I mean, I, I, it's interesting that this will create the, the water vapor in the winter in many homes that have forced air it would help humidify them a little bit more. Um, I, I do wonder ultimately for venting uh, what the extra water vapor might mean. I do not know the answer to that. And that is why they're testing them at hydrogen heights. Their goal is if they reduce, if they do this system-wide, they could reduce their carbon footprint for 1.2 million customers across Ohio. And that could really add up. But, you know, I, it's, I, it, I don't it's know. Dramatic. I don't know how many people think about this. It, yeah. It's dramatic how much that could reduce the greenhouse gases. I mean, if it works, it's a fascinating idea. Uh, I just wonder if there are residual effects on the homeowners and businesses to fortify their systems against uh, uh, any kind of metal corrosion that can result. Sean McDonald, like he always does a really good job of explaining complicated issues. And he explained this is like gasoline in your car, that putting um, ethanol in it, like you can put up to a certain percentage without affecting how it's going to run your car, right? So this is the same idea and they're, they're testing it, how much they can do. I feel like this is the time last year we were talking about whether you can have gas stoves and ovens at all, right? I mean, mine is electric, so I don't think this would affect me. Yeah, it was a fascinating story by Sean. Really, he found a good one. He explained it well. Uh, I was delighted, and I love the hydrogen heights. It felt like it was right out of the 50s, like a sitcom. It did, and they, he, he has pictures. So if you haven't read the story, go read it. And it, it, it is this fake, cute little village. I mean, little shed houses. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. After all the sad talk last week about the demise of Corky and Lenny's comes a lawsuit that has some harsh things to say about employment there. Lisa, who sued and what are the claims? Yeah, it makes you wonder if the two stories are related. Former Corky and Lenny's employee Michelle Gilmore filed a federal wage theft lawsuit on Friday against uh, Corky, and Lenner, Corky and Lenny's and its owners, Amanda and Kenny Curland. This lawsuit claims that there were violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. They said there was an automatic deduction of a 30-minute lunch break for workers, whether or not they took it. And apparently they had a policy before COVID that allowed them to report you know, the, these 30 minute deductions to the management, but they did away with that policy after the pandemic ended. Also, they're saying that those working more than 40 hours a week weren't getting proper time and a half. The suit alleges that they should have been paid $9 and 30 cents an hour under a state law formula instead of what they were getting, which was $6.98 an hour, which is one and a half times the minimum wage for tipped workers. Gilmore has been a Corky and Lenny's employee for three years. She's seeking a collective party action. So any other workers that want to join her suit are welcome to do so. She is represented by the Chagrin Falls law firm of Voodris Law. Amanda Curland, when we contacted her, said she had no comment, but she did say that we've always taken care of our employees. Yeah, the timing of this one seems a little suspect. With Corky and Lenny's high up in the atmosphere of our consciousness, all of a sudden they land this lawsuit. We'll have to see. I mean, it's a civil suit. You never know where the truth is until it's resolved. And usually it settles and you never find out. So 
Sad news for Corky and Lenny's. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The UAW strike ended a while back, but we have another strike at a Northeast Ohio motor vehicle plant. And just before Christmas, Courtney, who's striking and what do they want besides more money? Yeah, we're talking about Valley Ford Truck in Valley View. Two dozen workers there are on strike. They work in their service department. This is Valley Ford's vehicle center that's located near 480 there. And these workers have told us that eight months of negotiations with their employer have passed and the company really still hasn't given them a fair contract. Their current contract expired in June. And what we're talking about here, their their beef over this contract is their retirement money and how they get paid, which could ultimately mean a pay cut in in their view. So on the retirement end, the company switched them from a pension to a 401k a few years ago. And now the company wants to, to reduce that 401k payment. And the workers are not happy about that, they tell us. And then this other piece has to do with how mechanics often get paid. Uh, it's called flat rate pay. So like say an oil change estimated to take 18 minutes, they get paid for 18 minutes, whether or not that oil change actually took that amount of time. So, you know, cars, things go wrong. You get in, find one issue or you know, some doesn't connect and it takes a little longer than usual, their pay rate is based on that estimated standard. So as it as it stands now, workers are getting a minimum pay of 39 hours per week. And the proposed contract that that Valley Ford has put forth would drop them down to 35 hours of guaranteed minimum pay a week. And it, it has to do with how they're getting charged for those individual tasks like that. But the workers aren't happy and And meanwhile, the Valley Truck Center CEO didn't really want to weigh in on it, but said this came as a complete surprise. Tough time of the year to go on strike right before Christmas, although I guess it gives you some time off with your family if you didn't have enough. And it sounds like it's been a long, a long fight, too. So I'm sure they didn't arrive at this decision lightly. You know, it's worth noting that union workers at the related company, Valley Freightliner in Parma, they're part of that same ownership group. They're also in contract negotiations, but they're not on strike now. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for the final episode of this podcast this year. Thanks, everybody, for listening and staying with us all year, giving us feedback about the conversations we have. As we close out, Lisa, Laura, Courtney, are you feeling like this was a positive year? Are you heading into what you expect will be a positive year? Or is this a year you're glad is over because it was a miserable wretch of a year? I'm going to be the pessimist. (laughs) My basement flooded five times. It cost very much money to fix it. I had a little heartbreak. And so, yeah, mm. in 2024, I'm girding my loins for November. Yeah, that's going to be tough. What about you, Courtney? Definitely. You know, next year is going to be a ride politically, I think. But I'm still riding the high of of 2023. I bought a house and got married. So it was a good one for me. A good year for you. Yes, (laughs) indeed. Absolutely. Laura, you always are optimistic. (laughs) I had a good year. I mean, we finished our home construction. So like this, we've had our, our, our work done. We built a new garage that I'm like staring at. It's a red barn in the snow right now and makes me happy every time I look at it. You know, the kids are happy and healthy and yeah, I, I, I really do feel like that time is slipping faster and faster with the kids and I'm trying to hold on to it and just like make all the memories 
that we can now while my kids are still here and still young-ish. You think time fa- goes fast with kids? Where do you have grandkids? It goes even faster. <laughs> anyway, well, look, have a good holiday, all of you. I mean, I, I've enjoyed these conversations. It's one of the highlights of my day, getting to talk to you folks about these stories. It's fun. The, the audience seems to love it, and and we continue to have a good following. Happy New Year. We'll be talking again on January 2nd. Thanks to everybody who listens.